Welcome to Morning Report Top Stories, a selection of news from RNZ's morning news programme. Well, friends and colleagues of Fa'anana Efeso Collins say he was warm, kind and a strong voice for Māori and Pacifica communities, particularly rangatahi or young people. Tributes are pouring in for the Green MP who collapsed and died during a charity event in Auckland yesterday. Before becoming an MP, Fa'anana Afiso Collins was Manukau Ward Councillor for two terms and ran for the Auckland mayoralty in 2022. He gave his maiden speech in Parliament just a week ago. Our reporter Lucy Shia has been speaking to people in South Auckland. Here in Ōtara, where Fa'anana was born, raised and served his community, his loss is deeply felt. Winiata Walker, who volunteers his time teaching music to kids in Ōtara, says Fa'anana was always a role model. Such a humble man and from South Auckland to Parliament, that's such a big step for South Auckland. Winiata Walker says his death is a big loss for the communities that relied on him to have their voices heard. As our community, we have to fight harder um, because he was the change, you know. He was someone that we could look up to for change for our community. But since he passed away, I think we have to work together more and work harder. 25-year-old Terangi Parima, who runs the Ōtara Youth Hub, says Fa'anana was a valuable mentor for rangatahi. Empowering our rangatahi to see them from spaces like the spaces that he sat in. Um, empowering our rangatahi to think beyond, I guess, the lines that have been drawn out for us. And, yeah, he's a legend. Terangi Parima says she will always remember how he encouraged youth to consider becoming leaders. He actually was a significant part of supporting our rangatahi, um, our youngest rangatahi who ever went for a local board role, to actually step into those spaces and encourage her. And Manukau Ward Councillor Al Filipina says he was a strong advocate for the underprivileged. Students on uh, public transport to get to school, obviously the equity issue, he, he brought that to the fore. With the pandemic, for example, there was a lot of things that he would end up asking for, so he was an advocate for the community. His ability to capture an audience is fondly remembered by the CEO of the Papakura Marae, Tony Kake. I remember the time he set me up one time, we were both speaking at a conference and he went first and left me nothing to say. <laughs> but I say that in a complimentary way, not in a like a hee-hee way at all, but He's one of those people that could speak and just had the crowd wrapped around his finger. And for Terangi Parima, Fa'anana departed in a way that embodied what he stood for. He literally passed away exactly what he's always done um, and what he loves, and that's serving his community and being purposeful. A leader who community members say will leave a gap that will be hard to fill. That report from Lucy Shia. A scathing chief ombudsman's report into Oranga Tamariki is another reason to disestablish the government agency. That is the blunt assessment of Meripeka Rokawa Tate, chair of the Fano Ora Commissioning Agency, who says the Fano first approach should see the well-being of Rangatahi. It comes after Judge Peter Bosher released his review of more than 2,000 complaints made to the Ombudsman, finding that Oranga Tamariki is failing to follow its own laws and that large-scale change is needed. Miri Pekka Rekawatate is on the line now. Tenakwe. Tenakwe. Yeah, this report, as opposed to the many others that we have probably talked about on this programme, um, 
What did you find there that was surprising? Was there anything in there that was perhaps uh, uh, new? Uh, no, nothing new, nothing new. And of course, I'm never surprised because um, Oranga Tamariki has been around for such a long time. And all of the reports, including this one, just uh, continue to highlight what it's not doing. And so, no, not surprised. And uh, just, just extremely sad that it continues to be in existence. Yeah, I'll get to that in a minute about the longer term prospects. But some of the th- interesting things to come up in this report to me was this idea of consistency. That obviously there is some good work, but there's some bad work as well. And the inability of the agency to get consistency across what it is doing. That's right. And, and that's from, from one branch to another. And we've known that for a long time. And it's very much at the discretion of, of who's, who's picking up one case, um, not following their own guidelines. And so you won't get the consistency. But I think the biggest thing really that holds the organisation back and has contributed to them becoming pretty much the habitual abuser themselves is absolutely lack of respect uh, for the children that they are charged with caring for. That's a pretty bold claim to make. I mean, do you don't doubt that I mean, there are a lot of social workers arguably poorly paid battling away on the front lines there? I mean, they surely don't feel like that. You cannot make the you cannot make the significant changes that's required for that organisation when you've got the people who have been there who have been embedded in that system and that's the system of abuse that has been meted out to the children over many many years. So they are the ones that we are now asking, please change your ways, and and it just doesn't happen. Culture change doesn't happen unless unless the people change, and that is what I believe. Right, but I mean, we're talking about a systemic problem here. You are, or, or you seem to be suggesting that there are individuals with this view. Well, there are, there are, and the families will tell you that as well. I mean, it, 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 it is always the individuals. It is the people who are charged uh, with looking after the families, and that just does not happen. And then they're passed along to somebody else, and so it's everybody putting their. Uh, I suppose you could, well, actually, I'll say spin, their spin on what is required for that family at that point in time. The oversight is lacking. The commitment to, to make things better is lacking. And, and it really is the lack of the res- lack of respect for the children. And it's been going on for such a long time. Uh-uh. Uh, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, I mean, there is, a, there is in the report, I recall, a, a line which was a little interesting, which said that... Uh, the uh, ombudsman was saying people need to keep an open mind. Do you think that's what he was referring to? Well, keep Remain an open open-minded, mind. I think it was. Yes, yes. Well, no, I, I'm afraid. I'm afraid that door has closed long ago. And, and it does concern me. It does get... Well, the Oranga Tamariki is really the ambulance at the bottom of the cliff. And so we're trying to improve something that's going to be around after the event. And so we, why aren't we front-footing this? Why aren't we putting the millions of dollars that continuously go in to this organisation to improve their performance? Why don't we look to the families? If we know that we want our families to be brought up, our children to be brought up in homes that are fit for purpose, where there's good income coming into the homes, where the health issues are being sorted, then that's where we must look. Start with that goal in mind, and then who who has a role to play in ensuring that the environment is safe for our tamariki? And that's not that's not bloody rocket science. Why, though, get rid of the whole agency, as you suggest? What would be the benefit in that? The agency argues they are making changes, they are trying to deal with the many reports and make the changes necessary, and that they will uh, implement the recommendations from the ombudsman. What, what, what would be the point in actually removing the agency itself? 
well, what's the point in having them? What's the point in having them when every once a year we get these reports? I mean, we can't continue to have these reports and, and you know, I'll say, oh, my gosh, gosh, now we need to do different, something different. And every every six months, something else, a new plan, possibly other people coming on board. It is the families where you will find the solution. It is the providers who live in those communities, who know the conditions under which the families are living, struggling for I, I understand what you're saying, but there's not going to be necessarily those providers in every community. You need some sort of overarching oh, no, structure here, true. don't you? No, 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 that's not true. No, there are providers in every community, and many of them are actually doing some of this work already. Many of them are getting to the families right now. And look, when there is a lack of trust, so you can say, as you've just said, well, why, why work to disestablish the organisation? There's no trust there. And that's one of the biggest hindrances to the families getting the support that they require. When the trust is gone, it is absolutely so difficult to bring back. And, and so the trust is gone, and it's been gone for such a long time. Okay, so you're, what you're saying here is not about a, a sort of a name change, disestablish the agency, start something new in terms of a, a central bureaucracy. Are you saying it should be devolved completely to regional regional areas? Uh, I think that there is really a need now. I mean, I know that this, um, the report has highlighted the need for an improvement plan, um, but I, I say it is the disestablishment or a devolving plan that is required with input right now from the community and from the providers who know these families. And, and the people who know these families are not government agent employees who really do not have a vested interest. We who live, work... Oops in our communities have a vested interest in our families being strengthened. I'm going to come back to that point about not having a vested interest. In, I mean, that's pretty harsh. Do you not think that these people working again for Oranga Tamariki are doing, doing so because they believe that they are going to be making a difference? They're not doing it for any other reason. They won't be doing it for the money. They have had 20 years. They have had over 22 decades to make these necessary improvements. If you do not have the willingness to make the changes, to call out shonky, bad guidance, uh, guidelines and standards that are not being adhered to, no, I will cut them no slack. No slack at all. This is a government department that should have been disestablished many years ago. These are tamariki Māori that deserve the best. These are families that if, they, if there are issues in the families, get to the families and get the people into those families who can do the mahi. It will never be a government department. The solutions do not lie with the government department. And, and that's as clear as that. And no matter how much we might want to say good staff, um, a good minister, more money, that will not cut it. Kia ora. thank you very much for your kōrero. That is Miri Pekka Rokawa-Tate there, who is the chair of the Whānau Ora Commissioning Agency, with some comments there on the latest, well, what was a scathing report of Oranga Tamariki. Another one. Businesses in the Auckland suburb of Devonport say they're gutted that long-awaited upgrades, upgrades to the gridlocked main road are on the chopping block now that the regional fuel tax is going. Lake Road is the one road into the peninsula and the planned improvements would have shaved around 12 minutes off the commute to and from Takapuna. But the project is among 14 that are now being whittled down to just three when the fuel tax ends in July, scrapping $600 million in funding. Amy Williams has the story. 
There are two ways to get to Devonport, take a ferry from the city or drive in along Lake Road, a five-kilometre two-lane route that 30,000 cars travel along each day. Local Barbara Bradbury manages the clothing store Blue Illusion in Devonport and says traffic is the talk of the town. People talk about Lake Road all the time because a lot of people do experience it and uh, a lot of the visitors who come to Devonport are definitely very frustrated by the constant hold-ups. She says convincing courier drivers to deliver goods after 2 o'clock in the afternoon is impossible when the 20-minute commute can take up to an hour. I have had that from our delivery company who have rung and said, you know, is it very important that the driver picks up today or could it wait till tomorrow? They definitely won't come after 2pm. Auckland Transport planned to spend $23 million of the revenue collected from the regional fuel tax improving Lake Road. That's going. So is $243 million for road safety programmes, $111 million for cycleways and $69 million for bus transit lanes, to name a few. Mayor Wayne Brown says the city will lose out on $1.2 billion. Half in fuel tax revenue, the other half is Waka Kotahi money tagged to the now canned projects. Tony Van Tonda from the Devonport Takapuna Local Board says upgrades which include dedicated transit lanes and cycleways have been planned for eight years and gone through two rounds of consultation and were due to start this year. It's a really awkward road, it narrows in places and then it goes wider in places so it's not consistent in terms of its throughput. She says Devonport Town Centre is struggling despite enjoying cruise ship visitors over the summer. We do have a lot of vacancy in Devonport um, in the retail centre. The customer, the footfall is not there as we would like it to be there. Devonport is a special character uh, area, so we don't have a lot of infill housing or new people moving into the area, so we really are stuck. The Patriot is a long-established bar on the suburb's main street that Liz Sloan and her husband bought five years ago. She says their customers are mostly locals and in summer, cruise ship visitors, because no-one wants to drive along Lake Road. If I'm heading out of Devonport, I'll go very early in the morning, and I'm talking you know, 6, 5, 6 o'clock in the morning, or I'll leave it till about that 10, 11, 12, even 10 o'clock's pretty gridlocked, and after 2 o'clock you haven't got a chance of getting out of Devonport. It's just a nightmare. Liz Sloan says the road needs investment. Tony Van Tonda says since the government pulled the regional fuel tax, it needs to come up with another funding option for Auckland transport projects now missing out. I would really hope that the government has got some solutions because we'll be looking to them, as will all the residents on the peninsula, for the answer. She's due to meet with the MP for North Shore, Simon Watts, on Friday. Amy Williams with that story. Well, Air New Zealand says Auckland Airport's allegedly reckless spending could make flying unaffordable for some passengers. The airline's boss, Greg Foran, says airlines haven't been given any opportunity to challenge the multi-billion dollar redevelopment plans. I don't have any ability, and neither does any other airline, to sit down with Auckland Airport and say, hey, can we have a discussion about how much capital you want to spend? Now, this actually isn't really an Auckland Airport issue. It's a regulatory issue. And that's exactly the approach we've taken. That's why we're going to the minister and saying, hey, you've actually got a construct at the moment that doesn't require any more bureaucracy, no more red tape. 
Well, I'm joined now by Auckland Airport's Chief Executive, Carrie Hurihanganui. Kia ora, good morning, uh, Carrie. Can I first get your reaction to uh, Greg Foran's comments this morning? Yes, well, good morning. Um, and I think one of the things that's really important up front is a number of the figures that, uh, that were shared yesterday in, in their release actually are speculation uh, at best and, and also verging on misleading on the view of $50 increase to airfares <clears throat> is not the case. We have a $5.7 billion priced element to our infrastructure bill. That priced element means that that goes through to airline charges. Um, not the seven to eight billion they're referring, and we've we've looked at the numbers every which way we can, and we don't get to fifty dollars. It is lower than that by quite a, quite a bit. What and do we, you get the reason, to? The reason we don't share the numbers is it's speculation. We haven't set the prices, the interest rates, cost of capital, all of those things come in it. So to be sharing numbers when we haven't set prices or, or engaged in that consultation. Um, I say is is misleading. But in terms of regulation, we do have a regulatory scheme actually in place, has been in place since 2008, has been reviewed several times by Parliament and found to be adequate because what you need in a regulatory framework is the incentive for investment, the appropriate investment, to get the right long-term outcome for consumers, not the short-term interests of airlines or airports. So okay, can I, ju- can I just stop you there one moment? Because I do just want to nail down these prices. What was your estimate of the 46 or 48 that Air New Zealand is talking about is inaccurate? Following your analysis, what's your uh, estimate of what kind of increase there would be? I said it will be substantially less. We're not, we're not, we can't estimate it. Ingrid, at this point, because things like capital interest rates, etc. But if we've done some scenario, analysis, so so, so you can't give any sort of ballpark figure on what that forty six, what that figure might be. It's considerably less than that, is is what I will say. Is that going to be passed on to consumers and make flights unaffordable, as as in New Zealand is saying? No, I don't think it is. When you look, take the existing pricing period, it's increasing a dollar seventy-six a year. So yes, there are price increases, and, and we've been very transparent about that with the investment uh, in the infrastructure at the airport. Um, but it isn't going to be affordable. We've done a tremendous amount of modelling. We've shared all that information with the Commerce Commission around elasticity and forward bookings and demand, um, and that's with them right now for them to scrutinise to say actually is Auckland Airport uh, pricing at a fair. Okay, because the, what Air New Zealand is saying is that they want to have a say. They want to be able to sit around the table with you and have a say about how much is spent and how much is passed on. Well, they do have a say. We've, we've spent 10 years talking to them about the replacement of the domestic terminal, the last couple of years in deep consultation around pricing and the different elements that go into that of what's priced and non-priced. We've made changes to the design based on their feedback in the last two years. So when they say they don't have a say, I think... The difference is what they want is control because they have a commercial interest that if they can dictate the amount of spending in the airport, then they can protect profit margins. They can protect their dominant position at 86% market share. So so understand, nobody wants price increases. Every business is struggling with that. But we also have a 60-year-old asset that needs to be replaced and investment needs to be made. And when we've benchmarked internationally, what we're building and the prices and the cost of that um, is very competitive in line with that. It is unfortunate. New Zealand and construction costs do tend to be about 30% higher than the likes of Australia because of our location, but that's consistent across the construction industry in totality.
Will consumers have more choice after this uh, redevelopment or when this redevelopment goes ahead? Well, the great thing about the development is it is increasing capacity, so 26% more gate capacity, 44% more capacity for processing passengers through the terminal. So it does create uh, headroom and the ability for competitors to come on uh, should they want to. Appreciate your time this morning. That was Auckland Airport's Chief Executive Carrie Hurihanganui there responding to uh, criticism from Air New Zealand about the uh, pricing of uh, redevelopment at Auckland Airport. The airline says it will make it unaffordable for some passengers. Well, Woolworths New Zealand has reported a 42% drop in pre-tax earnings to $71 million in the six months ending in December. Now, sales were actually up, but margins fell. The result came the same day as the company's Australia-based chief executive, Brad Banducci, resigned days after a disastrous interview with the ABC about high food prices there. Woolworths declined our invitation to come on the programme. For more on the implications of the results and the leadership changes, we're joined now by Consumer New Zealand's Head of Research and Advocacy, Gemma Rasmussen. Kia ora, good morning, Gemma. Morena. We hear a lot about uh, how much supermarkets are making, the implication that they're making too much money. In this case, uh, why did they lose? Why have they had a 42% drop in pre-tax earnings? Well, I think that one key piece of information is that Woolworths New Zealand has invested in a $400 million rebrand um, from Countdown to Woolworths. So this is upgrading their stores um, and rolling out their new everyday rewards loyalty program. Um, So I guess when you look at that as an expenditure, that's actually a a huge amount of money. Um, We would say, you know, I think at the time that that announcement of the rebrand came out, there was a lot of questions about, you know, why this was taking place and whether that was the best spend of money. From our perspective, we had noticed that the supermarkets were not um, able to get their pricing integrity correct in terms of the right prices on the right shelves and felt that this would be a better investment into into their business than um, changing their name from Countdown to Woolworths. But these results are showing the margins actually fell, how how much profit they're making. Yeah, that's right. So I think what's going to be really interesting in terms of margins and profits that being made is what the work of the Commerce Commission is doing. So the Commerce Commission will be putting out a report um, at some point this year, potentially at the midpoint of this year, which will be looking into the profitability of those markets, um, both Woolworths and foodstuffs, and actually defining themselves whether they consider the supermarkets to be excessively profitable. They have the ability to open up the books. The last time this was looked into by the Commerce Commission, they were found to be excessively profitable. So I think that will be a real key indicator as to whether um, our supermarket functions are working properly and fairly from an independent source. There's obviously concern over grocery prices and, and competition in Australia too. The, the debate we see going on here too. The ABC Four Corners investigation, uh, the interview which preceded Mr Banducci's uh, retirement, what did that reveal and what are the implications for the uh, operations of Woolworths here and, and New Zealand consumers? Well, I think that it was quite interesting and in that it was looking at price gouging. And when I say price gouging, I mean, um, you know, the supermarket using inflation as a smokescreen to really squeeze suppliers 
um, make them uh, pay sometimes higher costs in relation to promotions and then also for consumers to be um, paying higher costs as well. So so really taking taking a lot of profit there. With where Australia is at, it's quite interesting because they're basically two years behind behind us. Um, there was a Senate inquiry that was that was launched at the beginning of this year, and they're basically going to embark on the same process where they have one year of assessment to understand the state of groceries um, and and those levels of profitability. We're two years on. Um, we've had a number of measures that have been introduced in an effort to try and um, you know get rid of price gouging, get rid of poor supplier relations. Um, and, and to try and, and improve the state of competition. So, um, you know, we're really sort of watching with interest what happens in Australia and how that develops. Thanks very much for your time this morning. That was Consumer New Zealand's Head of Research and Advocacy, uh, Gemma Rasmussen. Fear not the Tanifa, but the great Chinese dragon coming to Auckland tonight. The handmade fire-breathing beast spanning the length of two buses has been specially commissioned for this year's BNZ Lantern Festival at Manukau Stadium. Group manager of major events at uh, Takatai Auckland Unlimited, Jep Savali, is on the line now. Kia ora, good morning. Uh, kia ora, ni hao, and kong si uh, it is uh, nice to talk to you. Uh, the Lantern Festival, I think back to it many years ago at Albert Park in Auckland, uh, always an amazing event. It's shifted location, but people can expect the same sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's um, as you mentioned, 2000, uh, it was up at Albert Park. So it started at the Year of the Dragon, and uh, we've come two full lunar um, zodiac cycles later, and we're here bringing it back to Tamaki Makoto uh, at the Monaco Sports Bowl uh, tonight. So, tell us about this dragon uh, and how it will, uh, what it, fire breathing, uh, I understand there's some issues there around uh, fire safety. Well, I mean, all of our lanterns are made from silk. They're all handmade. Uh, they come from uh, mainland China. Um, and in association with the lantern company that Tataki Auckland Unlimited partnered with, uh, we're bringing this uh, specially commissioned dragon for the Year of the Dragon at the Monaco Sports Bowl. So, um, being silk, um, it's obviously very hard to um, have fire come out of it, but we will have fire. Uh, there's firecrackers, there'll be fireworks. Um, there's lots of things that people can expect that they would normally see at the Lantern Festival of Food. Um, we've partnered with the BNZ, who are bringing in the New Zealand Breakers, uh, the BNZ um, Northern Kahu team. So if you've fancy yourself a bit of a basketball and have some skills in that area. You can try yourself out there. So lots of cultural contemporary performances on the main stage. So all the things that you can expect at the Monaco Sports Bowl. Just to remind people, what is the significance of lanterns to Chinese culture? It's uh, the Lunar Festival. So right across Pan-Asia, the significance of lanterns is the Festival of Light. Um, It's ushering in good spirits and good fortune and prosperity. And this year, as I mentioned, it's the uh, the Year of the Dragon, which is a really auspicious year. And therefore, we've um, partnered with uh, the Tien Lantern Company, um, the uh, Chinese Culture Centre in Auckland, and uh, the Federation uh, Chinese Association in Auckland as well to bring this newly commissioned uh, dragon to Tamaki Makoto. So do you let an, a, a large number of lanterns into the sky? Is that sort of a, at a set time each night? How does that work? No, no. All of our lanterns are ground-based, um, albeit there'll be some that will be hung in trees, etc. Um, where we are at the Monaco Sports Bowl, we, there's 
I mean, it's not a thing for us to be letting off lanterns into the sky. So they're all ground-based. They're beautifully lit. We tested them all last night, and they're all going beautifully. It's a, it's a really is a magical space and place. So if you're um, in Tamaki Makoto this weekend from tonight onwards, come down to the Monaco Sports Bowl. Uh, the BNZ Auckland Lantern Festival mm. um, is truly a magical place. And would you recommend people come when it's dark? I mean, to get the full experience. Absolutely. I think um, what people tend to do is because it opens at 5pm every night and goes right through to 10.30pm, people want to um, grab an early dinner and, and, and grab, I guess, um, what they can out of the daylight and watch that sun set and then everything could just change magically into night and so that's when our lanterns really do come to life and it will bring this venue to life, Corin. And it's a, there's a pleasant walk, you know, there's lots of places to sort of walk around and, and observe you get that sort of sense of being able to sort of amber through the lanterns. Yeah, I think the Monaco Sports Bowl is um, perfect. It's a perfect location for that. And um, you'll be able to not only just wander onto the main field, but there's lots of what I call surprise and delight. So around the corner, you'll see our retail. Around the next corner, you've got Lantern Boulevard, where you'll see a, a boulevard uh-huh. just full of lanterns. You'll go round the corner again, and then there's food trucks. Sounds great. Hey, thank you very much, Jeb. We've got to leave it there. Jeb Savali uh, from uh, Takataki Auckland Unlimited. Yeah, Lantern Festival. Fantastic. Get into it. You've been listening to Morning Report Top Stories. 